Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. It's time for the weekly governance update with our thanks to sponsors Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. And joining me as always is Stephen Cooper, the Chief of Staff at the VLGA. Hello, Steve. Hello, Chris. You're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed today. How are you? Oh, I could... Uh, never better. Never better. <laughs> now, we better let pe- people on. We are recording on Friday morning. Why are we never better, Chris? Uh, because last night was, uh, for the first time in quite a while, the opportunity to catch up with a whole lot of local government folks at the LG Pro Conference dinner. And can I just say a good time was had by all. Oh, I'd echo that. Congratulations to Leona Thompson, to Jill Brown, to the LG Pro team. Um, a lot of goodwill in the room, Chris. Yes. Uh, look, people are just, uh, they were just really grateful, I think, for the opportunity to get together again and do some some networking and uh, enjoy each other's company and look I saw I'm sure you're the same saw so many people that I haven't seen in person for more than three years uh, it was it was just a really nice event I think Dennis Denudo would say it was the vibe Chris then there was just a terrific vibe in the room and, and as you say people gra- grateful to be there and I think the awards had more resonance than um than usual, and um, they are always a celebration of good work. Look, full marks to Jill and the team and the MC, whose name's just escaped me, Cam, I think it was, um, who really set the tone from the start and made it really clear that uh, while in the past everyone's uh, eating, drinking, talking, etc., while they're doing the awards, it's always been a bugbear, to be frank. Mm. Lots of noise in the room. People behaved. They they shut up. They they let the awards ceremony happen and and gave it the respect it deserved. It was wonderful. And we better do it, Chris. Props particularly to Ganawara Council, who I'm not sure may well have to I don't know fix the suspension in the vehicle for the trip home because they have carried home a swathe of awards. Uh, JLF in the studio. Can we superimpose something here that uh, I don't know whether it's uh, you know a, a, a punching bag with a with a with a boxing glove? They punch above their weight, is what I'm trying to say. At Ganawara, I had a chat to Tom O'Reilly, the CEO, just before the evening commenced. They were nominated uh, ten times across the awards. They took home at least three, I think, from my recollection. Uh, and boy, they were excited, weren't they? They were. Um... But not big noting about it. Very, uh, very humble in terms of the what what they do with a small number of people and a limited budget to uh, really uh, extract value for their community and remote communities, um, including one award, you know, affected by drought. And people don't know where Tregal and Dingwall and yes. um, little communities like that are, but they're you know really working across their whole community. And Steve, there were quite a lot of awards. Uh, I don't propose to go through all of them other than to say that LG Pro has put the uh, the award yearbook up on their website. I assume it's there by the time you'll see this. I did want to mention the Young Achiever Award. I thought that was, this was terrific. How often have you seen, we're talking about punching above your weight, um, awards going to the borough of Queenscliff. They've got a communications officer there by the name of Matt Gibbs who took out the Young Achiever Award and gave one of the best acceptance speeches of the night. I thought that was terrific too. And absolutely terrific speech and he acknowledged the uh, breadth of their team of two 
at Queenscliff and the fact that they've really just got to turn their hand to everything at uh, in response to issues that they have to deal with. And, um, yeah, congratulations to Matt. I thought it was a terrific speech. I think I, I had to look it up. I think the population of the borough of Queenscliff is about three and a half thousand. So, you know, that multi, that multi-skilling, absolutely, it's a, it's a necessity in, uh, in, in a council organisation like that. Absolutely. Nowhere to hide at a place like that, Chris. So well done to all and particularly to, as you said, Liana, Jill and the team at the very hardworking team. It was lovely to see them as well uh, at uh, LG Pro on a terrific event. Not just the dinner, but the two-day conference by all accounts went off exceptionally well. So congratulations. Now, last week's episode, uh, Steve has got a lot of attention, uh, even some comments, uh, which we'd like to share. I think uh, I, I looked at the numbers over the weekend and thought, why are all, why is everyone discovering the governance update all of a sudden? A uh, couple of contentious items is the answer. We were talking about the school gate issue in Yarra and the golf course issue in uh, Darabin. I think it's a consequence of more listeners, Chris, is there's more opportunity for people to find things to give us feedback about where we might not have been as correct as we might or things that need clarification. So oh, I feel I feel an addendum and erratum coming on. And as we've said, Chris, you can't say erratum without saying addendum or vice versa. Um, yeah, and the first one, of course, um, shout out to Mayor Lena Messina of the City of Darabin who corrected me because I don't know why I thought it had gone from a 12 whole course to a three whole course uh, to a nine whole course at Northcote Public but um, more correctly as Lena pointed out on LinkedIn uh, three of the holes were being modified to accommodate um, that additional public space so thanks yes. to Lena for that. And that's one of the issues that got quite some comment. We might just share some of these comments off the YouTube stream where we had Phil uh, note it was a complex issue. Uh, but what seemed to be continuously overlooked in the reports, he says, is that the golf course is surrounded by open public greenland. And he mentions a number of reserves and parks saying these are just some, not all parks that are within a few hundred metres of the golf course. He says, I just don't understand it. The folks who want the golf course to basically be closed have a bee in their bonnet over something that really isn't an issue. So there's one view. Absolutely. <laughs> one in amongst a multitude, Chris. Um, Irene has said, I'm not a lawyer, but it's pretty widely known you cannot adversely possess Crown land, which I think was in my comment regarding the grammar school at Elfington. And I'd absolutely agree with um, Irene that you can't. I thought that land was um, uh, a... Disuse Road? Disuse Road. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah. Um, but but the anyway, point her comment is still correct. correct. Sorry? Yes. Her, her comment is still correct. Irene's absolutely spot on. Yeah, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't agree more. And there was another one back on the golf course where Sean said, uh, rightly so, the golf course was always a nine-hole course, but the size of the golf course is to be made smaller. He's thanked us for correctly identifying that the curfew, the 3 p.m. curfew, is just an option that's being explored. Mentions that too many other places have reported it as fact that there would be no golf after 3 p.m., despite a number of sources clearly showing there's to be a briefing on options around that. So... Thank you for that feedback as well, Sean. We do try to get it right, don't we, Steve? Well, we do our best, Chris. <laughs> yeah. So that's some great uh, feedback. And we've got some more feedback from listeners that we'll share uh, towards the end of the program. Uh, let's talk about a few things that caught our eye this week. Uh, firstly, out of the news, uh, we've got a new federal local government minister, Steve. We've in fact got two ministers with local government in their title, which has confused me. Just a little. Are you able to shed any light on that? Um, none whatsoever, Chris, except that the um, cabinet minister, or the senior minister, is um, 
Catherine King, member for Ballarat, I believe, um, well known to um, many in local government in Victoria. So um, congratulations to Catherine. And there's another portfolio held by former mayor of Bega Valley Shire, uh, Christy McBain, Chris. Yes, so Christy's the Eden Monaro member and she's in the Outer Ministry, Minister for Regional Development and Local Government and Territories. And I do mean to try when I get some chance to try and unpack what that actually means. I've seen no narrative about it yet. Doesn't mean there isn't any, I just haven't found it. So we've gone from having a junior minister, I think, or a... Or a um, an assistant uh, I was, minister, I think. An assistant minister, thank you. That's what it was. Um, after having had a federal minister for local government in the last uh, government, to having two ministers with local government at the title, that's got to be a good thing. Well, it bodes well for the sort of advocacy that's got on since the um, uh, the dissolution, I suppose, of COAG, Chris, and the and the you know subsequent limiting of you know the access of local government to top level decision making. So, uh, however that sort of access to the decision makers can be achieved. I agree. It has to be a good thing. Right. And of course, uh, we talked last week about uh, the peaks uh, already coming out and reminding the new government of the things that they said they would do for local government. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, another news item this week, Steve, that has caught a lot of attention that I think it's worth unpacking a little bit, happening in Macedon Ranges, where uh, for quite some time, uh, the council and the department of, well, I'll just say Delwip, it's easier, uh, within the state, have been negotiating on uh, transferring the east paddock of the Hanging Rock precinct uh, across to the state. This is the piece of land uh, that the council has owned for some time that has become used as a bit of a concert site for international artists. I think Elton John was there uh, not that, the that long back. has been there. Yes. Um, so um, uh, I don't profess to know all of the background on this, but the council's been grappling with this for a while. They passed a, um, a motion last week and there were a few different uh, motions uh, put, but ultimately decided to proceed to negotiating on that sale. Some councillors uh, have raised concerns that the, the master plan for the area that the state is doing is not finalised yet, and they're using that as one of the reasons why perhaps more cautions required. And I understand it was a 6-3 vote and that a rescission motion has now been lodged and there's a special meeting coming up um, or an unscheduled meeting uh, coming up uh, next Tuesday, I think it is, to deal with that rescission motion. So it's on hold. And um, that must have been lodged pretty much straight after the meeting, Chris, because as we know, um, one of the issues around rescission motions is there is a risk to the council if someone has acted on the motion. Yes. So there's, you know, governance rule requirements that um, the, the matter can't have been acted on. Um, as a consequence, anything, any action on the motion will stop until the council deals with the rescission. It's, and it's never quite that simple, is it, Steve? I'm sure you've been involved in numerous discussions, as have I, about what, depending on the actual decision that's been made, what constitutes acting on that decision. Sometimes the view is taken that just communicating the decision means it's been acted on and should then follow through and can't be rescinded. That's clearly not the case or the view that's been reached in this case. No, I know some um, some town clerks, some old old style town clerks that I've worked with were always very keen that the correspondence out of a council meeting be forwarded immediately and not through any sort of um, reason of conspiracy, but more to give the community certainty that the decisions made by the council are able to be acted on um, and to instill public confidence. So yeah. it's an interesting one. 
agree with that point, and uh, we'll keep an eye on that. As I say, that unscheduled meeting has been scheduled for next uh, t- Tuesday morning, I think it is, 10.30. So. I love that. I still think it's a special meeting, Chris, but anyway. But, not, me not too, and, I, and I'll come back to that shortly. Um, the uh, the roundup on Wednesday will have the result of what happens with that rescission motion, I hope. Look forward to that. Follow that on your favourite podcast app. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, it's budget time, uh, busy time for councils, um, uh, most councils have had their budgets out on exhibition by now. And of course, uh, we're into June. So it's uh, almost time to make sure that they're locked away for the next financial year. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, Chris. I haven't heard a lot about council budgets this year, um, generally, beyond what you would normally expect. But what a couple of conversations I've had in the last week or two is that the impact of, let's just call it storm and tempest, Yep. Climate um, has been quite significant at a number of councils. And I know uh, two large peri-urban councils uh, around Melbourne that have had, you know, damage in excess of, you know, into the millions of dollars. And, um, you know, in a rate capping environment, budgets are tough, really goes back to the importance of a sound planning framework. Yes, I was having a good chat to the CEO of one of those councils uh, at the event last night. Um, I'm sure you probably were too. Um, And certainly interstate, New South Wales, Queensland, uh, similar things. What I have seen in terms of uh, public attention on council budgets has been more interstate this year, Steve, because um, councils in states where they are not rate capped uh, are being um, forced to declare and warn ratepayers that their their rates are going to go up significantly this year for for those sorts of factors. The other big one I think I'm hearing mostly uh, around Victoria is the impact of current conditions, economic conditions on delivery of capital works. There's lots of big carryovers. Mm. There uh, there are lots of challenges in in not only delivering projects but even getting tenderers to the table in the first place. And of course. Uh, when they do, often the the submissions, the quotes that are coming in are so far and above what's been uh, estimated and budgeted, it's really putting a squeeze on councils. This is, this is a diabolic situation that just appears to be getting uh, far worse before there's any signs it will improve. Uh, I was talking to a lawyer yesterday um, who actually wasn't from Hunt & Hunt, who's made the comment that their... Um, their kind of construction practice has just really uh, escalated, if I can use that pun, Chris, over the last few years. And, um, you know, no doubt added to by COVID and the the risks associated with um, either non-performance, delays in supply contracts, the solvency of providers, um, it's a complex area. And overlay that with the shortage of uh, professionals uh, in a whole range of positions, as someone said to me this week, where have they all gone? So, um, and that, that's a fair question. You know, we've, we heard about the great resignation, but but where have they all disappeared to? So councils are having, and not just councils, it's right across um, the business world, uh, are struggling to get uh, people to fill crucial roles. Um, and we've heard a bit played out in the media this past week around building surveyors, town planners. This has always been a challenge. Uh, but it's becoming a much bigger one for the sector. Well, town planners, it's just always been an issue, hasn't it? That some will want to spend their time in local government and then go off to consulting. Others will 
um, you know, as a career choice, stay in local government, probably for less money, um, but, you know, for a bit of social good. Building surveyors, it's an extraordinarily difficult issue because the privatisation of the market, but councils still have responsibilities under the Building Act and a requirement to provide a municipal building surveyor. And, um, you know, getting those people is really, uh, really difficult. I know there are councils out there doing resource sharing with their neighbours. There are, and there's councils also being uh, very upfront with their communities about the impacts this is having on timeframes. So if you've got applications in for planning permits, uh, building applications, etc., they're warning them up front about the time that it, it might take due to this shortage. Uh, one council that's been in the news is Loddenshire, which uh, is reported to be telling people you might be better off going off and finding a private building surveyor um, if you don't want to wait the time that it's going to take for us to, to process it due to those challenges. So, I mean, it's good they're being upfront with their community about those impacts. Oh, absolutely. And it's an interesting one because in that sense, people have always been able to go off and provide a private building surveyor. I guess my point was... I'm not an expert on this. There are certain responsibilities, certain oversight responsibilities that sit with the MBS, the Municipal Building Surveyor, yes. that are not the purview of the VBA. And yeah. you know how councils address those um, compliance issues becomes really interesting. Uh, and a shout out, uh, last night uh, I was able to join the, some folks from Whittlesea for part of the evening, uh, where I have a strong connection, as you know, uh, and t two of the Whittlesea uh, staff members that were able to enjoy the uh, the night last night uh, are doing the, the, the Women Building Surveyors uh, program Absolutely. that the government is supporting and LG Pro is, uh, is supporting. And I was lucky enough to be when I was working with LG Pro on in an interim basis last year. Uh, don't know what it was, oh, time uh, to be involved in the setting up of that. So, I mean, it's just so good to see that that Fabulous is program. going to bear fruit uh, sooner rather than later now, and let's hope there's more of it. Whittlesea actually topped up the program to, to put a second person through, uh, recognising the value of getting some more qualified building surveyors at the other end. Terrific, and, and a great career opportunity for those women. So, fabulous. Is indeed. All right. What other news have we got this week? There's a couple of things out of uh, interstate, and, and I know people look forward to the gossip. I've got a little bit of gossip in terms of uh, appointments, etc., uh, coming up shortly. Um, one of our go-to people for a bit of news has become the, the local government minister in Western Australia, Steve. If you don't mind, Chris. One, yeah, John Kerry, MLA, I think is an absolute must-follow on LinkedIn because uh, in terms of a planning application dealt with by the City of Perth for a homeless drop-in centre, was it? Yes, a homeless drop-in centre that they wanted to move 200 metres around the corner. It's been there for 63 years and the council has denied this, uh, this application. Um, and one little quote, the reality is the City of Perth elected council could have sought to navigate this difficult issue with better leadership and gathering stakeholders around the table to find real solutions. Yes, this requires more work, but is strong and engaged leadership. And that is only part of the, uh, I'll just call it a whack. To the city <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, really on that principle, it's sometimes planning is hard and sometimes people... Um, I think he's making the point that just because people are up in arms about a matter doesn't mean that the council ought just uh, follow the pack, Chris. 
So to try and balance this, the city of Perth, it was a unanimous decision by those councillors to deny the application. The Lord Mayor, who's a very public uh, um, yes. person, Basil, uh, Basil, Basil Zemplis, Zemplis, the football commentator, absolutely, um, says that that CBD area is already disproportionately carrying the burden of homelessness services and that those services need to be decentralised from the CBD. Well, the minister, as you say, has, has whacked back uh, and says there's a very real risk that the, one of only two such uh, facilities uh, may now have to shut down in the city. And you know, what's the impact of that going to be? If you, someone said this to me years ago, Chris, if you build a place where you want to attract people, you don't get to choose the type of people that are attracted. Yes. And, um, I, you know, having worked, having worked in the Western suburbs and also at Port Phillip where, you know, there have been issues around homelessness. Um, I know, you know, part of it is it's it's not an ethical answer just to shift the problem somewhere else, I yeah. think. So it should also be said that John Kerry is not just the Minister for Local Government, he's also the Minister for Housing and Homelessness in his portfolio. So he's right across all the elements of this. And uh, as you say, he's had a real whack and his his closing remark, he's actually challenged some of the statistics that the City of Perth have used in rely, to have relied on to make their decision and said that they're simply not correct and says the City of Perth has a moral responsibility as the planning authority to provide leadership and resolve this issue. So we, we'll keep an eye on where that one goes. Yeah, and Chris, I don't think anyone saying just because an application is for a good cause that you automatically have to throw the gates open, if you like. But what the Minister certainly called for is um, stakeholder engagement and a deep understanding of the issues and who's affected to work through to the best possible solution. And I think his comment is to say we didn't quite get there. Right. And into New South Wales, a little bit of news this week about... Sorry to just leave that one there. I don't think there's much more to say, uh, Steve. Well well summarised. Um, <laughs> Central Coast Council is uh, one of the councils that has been under administration in uh, New South Wales. The announcement has come this week from New South Wales local minister that they will remain in administration until 2024. So in September of 2024, when all councils go back to election, Central Coast will be back in the mix with a return to elected representation. And I think, Chris, the short answer or the short issue there was um, the financial management of the council and a failure to either receive or consider financial reports in regard to the situation, the liquidity situation in which yes. it found itself. And um, I think when a council's in administration, really the big question presumably confronting the minister in New South Wales is, have the circumstances changed to give the new incoming council the best chance of success? Yes, so the Public Inquiry uh, Commission made eight recommendations, uh, some of which were to vacate the all those uh, council council or officers, extend the term of the administrator. And the minister has said uh, one of the reasons for this decision is to uh, avoid ratepayers having to foot the bill for two elections in a relatively short period of time. So if they were to go back to election, say, this year, they'd be going back again two years after. So it, it makes sense. The big thing here is it now provides certainty about what is actually happening. And there's some parallels here with uh, with what's happening in Victoria, with Casey and with Whittlesea, which are both expected to be going back to elected representatives in October 2024. Why are you laughing, Steve? As you might know a bit about 
all that sort of topic. Chris, I don't know Customers. why I'm sounding off. <laughs> in, in fact, it's a common thing that comes up um, uh, as part of the conversation that includes, you know, what's the difference between administrators and councillors? Um, you know, what's the, the, the timetable and the preparation like? And my, my view is you can't start preparing for that transition back to elected representatives uh, too soon. So that's a conversation that's happening pretty regularly now. Yep. And uh, for Central Coast, there's certainty now about the time frame, and they can be working towards that orderly transition uh, with plenty of time to, to get there. And isn't the case too, Chris, that with administrators, um, speaking generally, not about yourself, you would expect the administrators to be diving in and understanding the inner workings of the organisation in a way where you would normally expect councillors to rely on the CEO for advice. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, um, seeing as we're going there, um, again, I've been asked, because we've run into a lot of people I haven't seen for a while, about how that role's going, what's it like, what's the difference, etc. There's a there's a there's an assumption that it's easier for the council organisation to have administrators <laughs> with the professional backgrounds that we have than a group of elected councillors, and I've had to say to them, well, don't assume that because one one CEO has already said to me, the expectations are actually higher because you guys actually have the background and the knowledge, um, and and you're going to want to move much more quickly on things than perhaps when you've got a group of councillors that need to come up to speed on issues the point that you were that you were making so i have heard that elsewhere too chris that it's it's not always a piece of cake for the council staff with administrators because of that um, expectation and the level of rigor that's been brought in but I, I think the flip side of that is we as having worked in council organizations also understand that what i think is the really important role to influence culture and to have that top-down um approach to setting the right tone, setting the right culture, which sometimes councils grapple with and take a while to get to. It can be tricky, but, you know, equally, we, you know, we want to be back to a spot where councillors, as the voice of the people, are performing that role and able to do so. That's the bottom line. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a democratic system and we want to get back to democracy as soon as is practicable. Absolutely. What's next, Chris? Uh, what's next is uh, the classifieds. Uh, we have a new uh, CEO coming into the mix into Victoria very soon, next month in fact, with Wodonga having announced uh, this week the appointment of Matt Hyde. Uh, Matt is coming from Snowy Valleys Council. He's a 25-year local government uh, veteran in New South Wales and Queensland. So he's just going to step across the border into uh, Wodonga. The, the press reporting on this was interesting, Steve. I mean, you know how these things happen. The council had a confidential meeting on Wednesday morning uh, at which they obviously made a decision to, uh, to go with Matt as their preferred candidate. The paper was sort of stirring up, well, when are we going to be told, etc. But what they, they never did in their reporting was recognise, once you've got a preferred candidate, you've then got to go through the process of negotiating and sorting out a contract and getting it signed, and then you can make your public announcement. Uh, it happened pretty quickly, in fact, because the meeting was Monday morning, the announcement was made on Wednesday. I don't think that's uh, questionable at all. Hmm. So... Contracts have an offer and acceptance, and you have to have both those things in place, Chris. There yes. you go. Yes, exactly. So that, that's that's my take on what's happened there, and congratulations to 
Matthew Hyde, uh, who is uh, coming into the Victoria Mix. And I have updated the list of CEO movements on the Local Government News Roundup website accordingly. Had a couple of people tell me they rely on that list to understand what's happening around the sector. So I better make sure I keep it up. I heard a whisper, Chris, there's more to come in coming weeks. So stay tuned. There's there's six at the moment, Steve, on the list that are to be resolved. That includes uh, Dandenong, because we know John Benny's going to be stepping down at the end of November, but there's another five that, you know, over the next month or so, we should be getting some clarity on. Absolutely. Yep. Good. Now, uh, one of those is Darabin, and that's the other little bit of news. Darabin has scheduled a special meeting next week, and they've called it a special meeting, Steve. There's a public notice in the newspapers, and it says special meeting. It doesn't say unscheduled meeting. I love meeting, that, so Chris. Full marks. Give me more of it. <laughs> uh, and it's to, uh, to deal with the appointment of an interim CEO. So we can make some assumptions from this. They have an acting CEO at the moment in Rachel Olivia, who's one yep. of the directors there, um, or a general manager. I forget uh, the titles used at Darabin. Second level. Yes. Second level. Um, uh, can we assume that um, meeting to appoint an interim, that they're bringing someone in from outside? That's probably where the smart money is. They may be or may not. I don't <laughs> know. They may not. And, yeah, the really good thing is, Chris, um, at some point, the council will decide, and that'll be the answer. <laughs> that, that will be the answer. And we have confidence about the process because they have a monitor there assisting them with they that. Do. In, they uh, have Mr. rather John excellent Watt. and experienced John Watson overseeing things there. Now, I know you, uh, you want to make mention of Mark Brady, who I don't know, but you're aware of who's uh, wrapping up, uh, sounds like a, a, a very stellar local government career. I'm a bit late to this party, Chris, because uh, I believe Mark finished up a couple of weeks ago at Mornington Peninsula. Um, and my Was this a bit friend... of gossip you picked up last night at the LG Pro? No, in fact, I picked it up um, on Monday and I realised that, yeah, I'd missed the fact that, that Mark had finished. Um, I reckon I knew Mark when he was in his early 20s at the city of Frankston. He's worked at La Trobe, um, Bass Coast, Port Phillip, Mornington Peninsula, and Someone reminded us of the use of the term dark arts in relation to governance in a, you know, in a good way. Mm. Mark is a master and guru, like a grandmaster of the dark arts of governance in the sense that um, there's a lot of wisdom uh, in his brain. And uh, in, in that sense, he's a loss to the sector going off to community health, I believe, and wishing ah, okay. well. Absolutely. Well done and uh, all the best. Um, so the dark arts comment was a comment I made uh, last week or the week before talking about uh, the Indigo Shire um, meeting to, to, to deal with the mayor's notice of motion on opening up briefing sessions to the public. And I made the comment that when you watch that, there, there is a dark art to meeting procedure and we don't always get it right. And you've had some feedback uh, from someone else elsewhere in, in the sector who can sympathise with that? I think we had some feedback from a CEO who basically made the comment that there should be more of the dark arts in um, in governance and around council meetings because often that's the, uh, they're the critical points that keep the council moving in the one direction if the, you know, if the mayor is able to sort of uh, keep the meeting going in a way where people understand that we've followed the governance rules and we're adopting good processes. And did that person have anything to say, uh, he says, asking the question, knowing the answer, on uh, open briefings? Um, that person said that they had tried open briefings on a few issues and had a sporadic response. My words, not his. Um, 
from the community. So a bit up and down. And it sort of left me thinking that it's one of those issues, open briefings that look philosophically sounds terrific, but there's a whole lot of work to go in terms of um, giving good effect to that, Chris. Okay, good to know that there's, what, four people watching, listening, at least, from the comments that we've had. I'll give bonus points to this person, though. They also said they thought the um, the report, the interim report into the culture review was a pretty good document and there's no silver bullet and we've got to keep working on culture. Yes, we did talk about that too. And we need to come back to that at some point because uh, where is it going? Uh, the minister said a couple of times now the sector needs to own what happens next here. Uh, waiting to see. What is the yeah. sector going to do with it? <laughs> well, the report was framed in a way that sort of talked about, you know, options for further exploration. So yeah. we're in that phase of further exploring, I suppose. And yeah. What's this space, Chris? I'd like to have something more definite to say about this in a couple of weeks because we're doing a bit of digging at the moment. Look forward to that. Okay. And uh, before we go, you're, by the time people see and hear this, you'll have done this, but you're heading off to deal with another dark art, uh, and that is land use planning for councillors with some help from Tony Rannick. Tony Rannick from Hunt and Hunt and I are off to the land of Zoom at lunchtime today to do a um, open, a brief, you know, short and sharp open session. Uh, I think we've got about 15 councillors from around the state on land use planning. And that's a session that we've actually delivered uh, to two rural councils in, in half day sessions and um, really looking forward to it. And it's the bit that or one of the things that no one tells incoming councillors they're going to have to deal with. All right, good luck. Uh, I'm sure that'll be a worthwhile use of everyone's time. Steve, uh, that's all I've got on my list. Anything on yours? Uh, only another reminder, Chris, that we've got the Better Disagreements, Better Teams session also online with Melissa Scadden from Justicia Lawyers on the 17th of June, and the details of that are on the BLGA website. Okay, that's, uh, that's a wrap, I think. Uh, don't forget to send us your, your tips for stories, ideas and gossip. Uh, it'd be lovely to hear from you so we don't miss anything. Um, don't forget to subscribe, if you haven't already, to the YouTube channel and to the podcast, not just a VLGA Connect, but also the Local Government News Roundup, which comes to you Sundays and Wednesdays. Uh, Steve, have a great week. Uh, just leaves us to thank again the team at Hunt and Hunt Lawyers for, uh, for being terrific sponsors of this program. Ditto, Chris. Thank you, and you have a good week too. That's the VLGA Connect Governance Update for another week. Thanks for watching and listening, and we'll see you again soon. Mm -hmm.